So thanks for um, sitting down with me today. Um, I thought we would start with something we were talking about, I don't know, a week ago. And you were telling me about a cross-country trip you took mm -hmm. on your reclined bike from Annapolis, St. John's there, all the way cross-country to Santa Fe. And there was one thing you said. You said sort of on a particular stretch of road, you discovered that you were sentimental. And I love that. And I want to ask you about it. Okay, first of all, yes. it was from Santa Fe to Annapolis. So oh, okay. um, it's the direction is, it's, it, it doesn't really matter because where this took place was uh, on the banks of the Mississippi River, which is just about halfway. And yeah, um, it had grown out of a whole lot of things. Um, when I had been, a, when I was a teenager, um, I used to go hiking in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia, but due to a, an, a, a foot injury. I couldn't do that any longer. And so long distance cycling was something that was kind of taking over that part of my life. Um, so I set out, I got this um, recumbent tricycle. In fact, it's a three wheel vehicle. It's kind of like a lawn chair on wheels and you lean back and you roll and it's fantastic. And I wanted to take a, just a, a really long trip. And I thought from Santa Fe all the way back to Annapolis, linking our two campuses, that'd be perfect. That's about two thirds of the continent. That's a long way. Um, it took ultimately a little over a month mm -hmm. to do it. And I wanted, I wanted to have, um, to experience the country. And you do experience the country up close. You smell it in ways that you don't when you're uh, in a car. And things roll by, but you don't get that really, um, um, uh, how you say, um, nasal <laughs> experience, olfactory. That's, yeah. that's the 25 cent word I was looking for. Um, experience of it. So I'm riding along, I'm listening to books on tape, but I got to the Mississippi River and um, the path I was following crossed the Mississippi River at a place called Chester, Illinois. It's um, somebody who'd done bicycle tra uh, traveling thought this would be a good place to go. It's, it's not quite as busy as the bridges that take interstate highways across. Um, Chester turns out to be the um, uh, the hometown of Elsie Seagar, um, the man who uh, created the character Popeye. Okay. So you, you ride across the bridge and right on the other side of the bridge there's a little park and there's a statue, I was about to say a life-size statue, but how do you know, what's the life-size statue of, of Popeye <laughs> standing there? Spent the night in, um, in uh, Chester, Illinois, and on a Sunday morning, got, on, got up early and uh, got on my machine and went rolling down the bluffs. Um, early morning, um, fog kind of rolls in into the valley of the Mississippi. So it's a haunting kind of beautiful place. And I don't start listening to my books right away. I turn on some music. Um, and just by chance, the music that I happened to have was a, a tune called um, Rosemary's Sister by Connie Dover, sung by Connie Dover, this um, uh, Anglo-Celtic uh, folk singer. Um, and it's a, um, it's a ballad about World War II. And this, this girl, Rosemary, and her family are living in London. The Blitz is on. And the story is about, the story of the ballad is about um, um, a bombing raid and uh, her sister gets killed. 
and I'm riding along and I'm listening to this in the fog. Occasionally a deer wanders across the road. The deer are looking at me funny because they've never seen this before. <laughs> um, and I'm listening to this and, and then suddenly I realize I'm riding along the banks of the Mississippi River in the heart of America, weeping like a child over this <laughs> song. And that was the first time I realized that um, I'm a deeply sentimental person. I had for almost 50 years at the time uh, thought of myself as, as a sort of a, um, of a hard-bitten uh, noir uh, character with the, you know, Humphrey Bogart exterior <laughs> and, you know, uh, and it turns out I'd been lying to myself for a half a century of my life. Um, yeah, self-knowledge is not easy to come by yeah. and, um, and it's unpleasant when it happens, but I'm, probably valuable. I'm sure valuable. Um, I want to pu push a little in a St. John's way about, I mean, your description is so beautiful. It's funny because on the inside, it might be hard, but from the outside, it's a beautiful image. It's um, fun. Yeah. But I, I wonder if we can think a little bit about what that is. I mean... Um, self-knowledge? No, not self-knowledge. No. The sentimental. The It sounds to me like um, that description of the fog and the deer, and there's something about being present to, and the music sort of eliciting mm -hmm. that, that, I mean, what I really want to head towards is I'm wondering whether there's a real narrative that you sort of have woven and, and what role sentimentality does it, did it stick with you, but also did it, does it inform the kind of reading that we do? Do you ever get sentimental with the books that we read? Um, Sentimental. I mean, the word sentimental has a negative connotation, doesn't it? I mm -hmm. suppose it, it uh, does it imply a kind of a loss of control or uh, maybe that's not quite fair. Um, um, an, un, an irrational plunging into emotionality, mm -hmm. something like that. Is that what sentimentality is? Um, I mean, to, to say that you feel something, I was moved, yeah. is one thing to say, oh, he's, right. he's sentimental. That has a kind of a negative connotation. I think they're uh, experiences on this, kind of close to each other on the spectrum of yeah. human life. Um, uh, ever get moved by a reading? Yes. Um, <laughs> now you're going to want an example, yeah. right? I thought you might. Darn you. Um, the... Uh, the Iliad, mm -hmm. um, book 24 of the Iliad, uh, the last book. Um, when um, the whole arc of the story of Achilles is, is over and what's left is the completion of the story of Hector. Um, when Priam, the father of Hector from the city, uh, comes out accompanied by the gods and closed by the clouds and is led um, to the, the tent of Achilles mm -hmm. and uh, um, enters the tent and kneels and grabs the knees of Achilles and begs for the return of the body of his son and says, um, um, and now I'm doing what no man has done. Uh, I'm kissing the hands of the man who has slayed my son. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I can't even think about that without choking up a little bit. Yeah. Because it's it's astonishing that humanity at that point, um, I mean, that's a, what a flaccid word, the humanity. Of course they're human. Well, actually, it's, it doesn't go without saying with regard to Achilles, does it? Right. Um, but certainly with regard to Hector, that um, uh, the father, his son is dead. Um, it's, it's a cliche. It's been said any number of times that there's nothing that should be, uh, um, there's nothing worse than, than that parents should uh, bury their children, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there it is in this moment when it's not only that he's burying his child, he has to beg the person who killed him yeah. to do it. Oh, how could you not? Well, I said, of course you, I was about to say, that's a foolish thing to say. Of course it's possible to read it with a sort of a distant scholarly uh, detachment, yeah. but it's, it's hard. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I feel like the the description you gave, and and maybe we're right now fudging the sentimental versus being moved, and and I'm okay with that for the moment. But but when you were talking about being moved um, and that description mm-hmm. on the Mississippi River, um, it's powerful, and it feels it's it's a moment of self knowledge, and and there's something profound about it. And I am interested in our practice of, of reading books that, you know, I think about the students that mm-hmm. we ask them to read and come oh, to yes, class. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and the idea that if we're doing it right, our conversation in the classroom, things like what you just described with the Priam Achilles scene, which is that moving, that's where we're supposed to be landing in in sort of the the center of that human issue, not being able to to look away or deny it. But I think we, I, I'm kind of, I do think our relationship to that kind of actual being moved mm-hmm. almost to tears, it's not like we're getting together and we're going to, Read it and weep. Yeah, so I mean, we might. It happens. <laughs> what a but, strange way to say it. But yeah, so that that um, the relationship between I think we need to take really seriously that emotional movement, but it's not identical to what we're doing um, in our conversations. Not identical. Um, no, but um, the Iliad. Um, the Iliad is one of the texts that, um, for me, um, there are half a dozen of them or so. I could probably reel off a list and, uh, of books that have shifted my understanding in the course of my life. That was actually probably one of the first, mm-hmm. because I remember when I first read it, um, <clears throat> it was after I'd, I'd been a student at St. John's College before I went off in the rest of my career and came back and became a faculty member. Um, so I was accepted to the college as a senior in high school, and there was a period of time I was looking forward to to, uh, to going as an undergraduate. And I read the Iliad. Well, you're supposed to, right? Mm-hmm. I read the whole thing ahead of time. And um, I remember real clearly that um, my first reaction was... Um, dismissive and scoffing that Achilles seemed um, like um, he, he's, it's easy to see how this happens, a brat, 
Um, he's uh, ungrateful and he's irresponsible. And how can we? How can he be the hero of this book when he's he's a jerk? Um, and once you get that attitude, then nothing else really is. You know, you're not going to say to yourself, "Well, he's a jerk. The book is silly." Oh, but there's this very uh, exciting and uh, <laughs> powerful moment here. Um, things had to change and transform, in my understanding of the book. There's so many different levels at which you can read that book. Mm-hmm. Um, um, a first encounter, you could be, a, you could be that, um, that shallow person that I was reading it that way. Um, feeling the, um, getting to the point where you can then feel the, the human uh, or, or um, powerful emotional connection between Prime and Hector, mm-hmm. between um, Achilles and Patroclus. Um, there are other ways too, of course. I mean, there's the archaeological ways. There are the um, um, uh, linguistic poetic uh, ways. I've been with classes in sophomore language where we talk about um, the form of the um, uh, the Greek poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in classes actually when I was in graduate school. Actually took a class in Greek language and I spent some time with people who were thinking of it from a far more technically um, linguistic perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, um, There's so many different levels, but um, but mightn't, okay, I I was about to say it as as a doctrinal statement, but I'll try to put it in the form of a question, see whether it makes sense to you. Um, Unless we can connect at um, a level that is humanly important to us, it's, it's all very well to, um, to focus on the ways in which the Homeric language is an intermediate stage between a, a, a hypothetical early Greek that you can find, on, well, it's not hypothetical, but we don't have large pieces of poetry but, um, that we can find in some um, inscriptions. Uh, and a later Greek in which certain sonic changes haven't happened yet, mm-hmm. uh, and distinguishing between the Homeric dialect, which is kind of an artificial dialect. It's, it comes out of the um, eastern um, Asia Minor uh, or the Asia Minor coast, eastern um, Aegean. Um, it gets transformed as it's repeated over and over again in, in Athens. And so you can think about it in terms of, wow, what is what is the genitive singular doing with this uncontracted oyo sound uh-huh. rather than the other? Um, that's all very technical. That's all very, you know, you can do that. And some people can get wrapped up and be very interested in it, I suppose. But unless, unless you can connect to why anyone would compose this thing and why audiences would sit wrapped for hours listening to it, then you really haven't done anything terribly important with it, have you? Yeah. I, it reminds me we're reading or just finished reading uh, Nietzsche in uh-huh. my senior seminar. And I just, I, it's, I, I'm bringing it up because I think it complicates it in an interesting way. I agree with you. If it doesn't connect mm-hmm. in some real way, why are we doing it? The worry with Nietzsche, I think, Mm -hmm. and this might have to do with the difference between sentimentality or some kind of movement of heart or soul Mm -hmm. that we, I was going to say look down on, but think is is problematic in some way versus clearly we take seriously Mm -hmm. a certain kind of movement. That the worry with Nietzsche is that people can get moved quickly 
that the sort of fiery character of his language and the spiritedness of, of his arguments and sort of radical um, unconventionality moves people. And I think as a tutor, my responsibility, I, I do find that writing really powerful, but is to take a second and to pull us back to the text and somehow mm-hmm. to the level of, I don't even know, reason, um, trying to dig into what he's doing to get to a deeper level so that maybe we come out the other side moved, having mm-hmm. it mean something real for our lives. But there's a danger there of a kind of flurry of poetic movement that I think can capture people too quickly um, and invite uh, a sort of, you know, flouting of convention and some notion of beyond good and evil, which is is, is insufficient. Um, it's exciting. And so that, again, we're getting to this thing. It's of, interesting. You, yeah. you, you, you use the, the term unconventional and flouting of convention. And it's a kind of a strange thing. Um, the, the thought I have when you say that is, isn't it, there's a way in which Homer is totally conventional. If you're in those conventions, it's, it's a, mm-hmm. we're in a, we may be in a different world of conventions now than what he was in. That is, his poetry is, um, I'm thinking of the, the, um, the ways in which it was composed and the, mm-hmm. um, the theories that you run into with, um, um, uh, Lord, uh, is it Alfred or Albert, um, who um, explores the way in which the, um, uh, not just the meter of the verse, meter of course helps mm-hmm. helps people memorize long pieces of poetry. I, not me, I can't memorize anything, mm-hmm. it's my failing, but um, uh, but it's not just the metrical form, it's, it's um, chunks of semantic structure mm-hmm. that get dropped in. Um, uh, he focuses on, you know, why is, Achilles always swift-footed when he's in the accusative and never when he's in the genitive. Well, because that's the way you construct those words. Mm-hmm. The poet had a, an arsenal of things that he could say, and he said it, mm-hmm. and the people expected to hear. Now, he's to say that is maybe no more than to say that um, any artist has a palette of colors, and they expect to see colors, and you can do things with the colors, and, and, and the, uh, the Homeric poems do that say oh, Homeric poems a little advisedly because it's conceivable that what we have is not composed by any individual but by mm-hmm. an aggregation of, of poetic tradition. Um, but you use the word unconventional. Um, that fiery, that um, flamboyant um, personal struggle, um, by the time, even by the time you get to... Um, to Virgil mm-hmm. in the um, uh, first century BCE, um, as he's composing the, the, the Aeneid, mm-hmm. he's looking back, I think he must be looking back, and I feel like his poem is looking back at those things and feeling that radical difference that, that uh, Achilles is a character who can do things that Virgil's characters can't do, mm-hmm. that they're more constrained. Uh, they, uh, Achilles lives in a world in which, um, sure, there were social conventions, but what they had there on the shores of the of the uh, of, uh, outside of Troy, outside the Hellespont, 
or an aggregation of kings. They weren't mm -hmm. satraps underneath a, a single monarch. Um, their society hadn't uh, become nearly as rigid, nearly as, uh, as um, structured as what Virgil was living in. And he could, he could, he could hear in Homer ways that these people could be that seem unconventional to him, to, like they seem unconventional to us. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you get, among other things, in, in, uh, in the character of Aeneas, um, a hero who is, well, he's not, but, uh, but Virgil certainly is, constantly aware of the shadow of Achilles mm -hmm. and the way in which the world in which his hero, Aeneas, lives and moves is not that. Mm -hmm. um, he's subordinate, he's obedient, he's, the Latin word is pious. Mm -hmm. He has a, piety is not something that Achilles has going for him mm -hmm. uh, at all. Um, the Aeneid is another of the books that's changed in my, est my estimation of it. Mm -hmm. My first encounter, this is, I'm being far more um, <laughs> revealing of how, how stupid and shallow I, have, I, I am or have been, maybe both. But my first encounter with it as a sophomore, I didn't understand that book at all. Mm -hmm. um, it seemed like a, by that time, I had accepted the, the Iliad mm -hmm. uh, and come to, and the, the seminars in my freshman year had led me to find that my first reading as a senior, thinking of going to St. John's, that was swept away. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd come to, to really kind of appreciate, I think at some level, maybe not the best level, maybe at the deepest level, mm -hmm. because, but the books yeah. keep getting yeah. better and better, um, but I, certainly better than I had been. So it seems, it seems to me that the, um, what you're reflecting on in your sort of changed relationships and increase, you know, go especially going from, and I don't think it's um, atypical having a kind of reaction mm -hmm. first time through and then changing it. Changing it. Um, but if the practice of reading, I mean, it really speaks to that. So I, I, for some reason, in the context of this conversation, I think clearly we learn more. The more you read, the kind of more detail you see, the complexity of character, of argument becomes clearer to you. Your relationship to the questions you have about the text change. But I think that it, that it happens at the level of emotion as well is mm -hmm. really interesting. That you And this is going back to my Nietzsche point because it's sort of the opposite of maybe a fiery first reaction. Mm -hmm. It feels a lot. You feel mm -hmm. something, but maybe you need to actually that, that that there are layers of that kind of emotion as well. You know, it's not just that you get to be a deeper thinker. You sort of get to be a deeper feeler. So this idea that, that what's worth reading is something that moves us, right? That's what we were saying. That if it doesn't actually speak and to your humanity, as you live with it, the manner in which it moves you can differ. Yeah, can grow change and and develop. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. Um, it, someone might think, <laughs> a lot of people think. It turns out when, whenever I use the phrase, a lot of people, uh, what I really mean is me, if I'm not being very thoughtful. Uh -huh. uh, a lot of people think that feeling is just a given. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 there's a yeah. tradition of that, actually. Right. And, and I think that the students, too, it's interesting because I think the students agree with us that you want to to feel moved. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you have to earn that is maybe less intuitive to us and what it looks like. Um, and here I want to shift it a little because I know that you, I mean, you do a lot of work in the math 
and laboratory programs. Very feeling place. Well, that's what I want to ask is in theory to me, it shouldn't be totally different. If we're going to talk about deep movement, you know, not necessarily the first blush, of Mm -hmm. course, you know, I think about the brothers Karamazov that I cry at that book in the rebellion scene when all of these terrible descriptions of what happens to the children, I can't help it. But my my relationship (laughs) to that crying has changed. So Mm -hmm. now I am, I question it. I wonder why is this a book that makes me cry like this? Um, Mm -hmm. But in any case, you, one would think that, that are, that you could be moved by it by a scientific text, by a mathematical text. And I feel like you're in a particular interesting position for me to ask you that because you know those texts well. Um, so I'm encountering the, um, uh, reading the works of um, uh, Scott Buchanan, the first dean of the, coll- of the college under the new program mm-hmm. back from 1937 to 1947. Um, he is the author of, among other things, a book entitled Poetry and Mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another book that I've been reading, Truth and Science, um, his, um, one of his central ideas is that a scientific text is, a, a great scientific text is a work of poetry by which he means, I think, um, not that the right-hand margin doesn't justify <laughs> um, and that there are rhyming words and stuff. What he means is a, word, um, a, a work of world creation a world in a work in which um, the former idea of what the world was gets radically mm-hmm. uh, upset and reformed, mm-hmm. and um, and there's a lot to what what he says about that. I think that's that's uh, that's that seems to be um, true. I'm thinking about. Um, one of the texts that's important to us in, at the college that we uh, call upon the students to read that not that many people do read. The, I'm thinking of Newton's Principia Mathematica. Um, um, upsets, uh, tears apart, and reforms the structure of the world mm-hmm. from the um, uh, from the understanding that it uh, existed previously. It completes the work of about almost a century of utter reconstruction of um, a cosmic vision mm-hmm. from a, a geocentric vision in which the heavens are the um, residence of of um, the gods, well, of the gods originally, and then of God mm-hmm. uh, and the angels, to one in which um, the world, uh, the rules of the world, the rules that govern the dropping of rocks and the rules that govern the, the motion of the moon are the same rules. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a piece of um, of um, imaginative reconstruction of an, Im- an immense caliber. Mm-hmm. I don't know though. Um, it's a persistent question for me <sighs> whether um, whether the kind of work that's done there um, it can be compared, of course to those, um, those uh, moving moments in, um, in great poetry that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has occurred to me to think that it's 
characteristic of that great scientific work um, that it, insofar as those uh, constructions are um, striving to grapple with ways in which we can reconceive the multiplicity of our world as exemplifications of, of universal laws, mm -hmm. universal and eternal laws, that we're connecting ourselves with something that's universally eternal and um, ultimately unchanging, um, a, a kind of a, a transcendent vision, and ultimately that it's comical. Comical? Comical. Uh -huh. I'm thinking in the sense that the Dante's Divine Comedy is a comedy. Mm -hmm. um, that is, maybe this is not the, the hmm. deepest philological in, insight into it, but I, I think someone mentioned in my hearing, and I've held on to it for a long time, that the Dante's Divine Comedy is comical and it, it, it doesn't end in human destruction and the, the mourning for it. It ends in, uh, at the end, um, it ends in the divine vision and the sweeping up of the human soul into the presence of God. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Is that's it? not tragic. Yeah, I have to think about it a little. I feel like some so what you said originally, the idea of a, a sort of total shift in our conception mm -hmm. of the most fundamental things. Um, and again, this is probably because I've, I'm doing senior seminar right now, that I'm thinking a lot about the way, um, I guess we I could say that one is held captive by, I mean, again, in Nietzsche, he talks about the nooks mm -hmm. that we sort of feel at home in the world because of certain understandings that provide refuge. Well, we, we don't know it, mm -hmm. that that's providing refuge, but we feel at home in the world um, in these nooks and the idea of what it means to strip oneself out of the nook. <laughs> um, and there's violent imagery in Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the places, as I was saying, what maybe we don't get on first read is that it's not a matter of just saying, oh, good and evil, you know, I, I don't need that. And walking through the world with <laughs> yeah, one's yeah. own volition leading, that, that, that the will to power is complicated because we do live in nooks. That's the way we live. We, we have homes in the world that allow us to make meaning of it and sort of um, feel at peace in certain respects so that this wrenching away what it really would take to do that. I mean, again, in his language, has this violent character. But whether or not we go, we, maybe we don't have to go violent. But it still seems um, severe or serious. Or but but the imagery of laughter is in that book too. Of this kind of wild laughter. So the scientific version of the world shifting. I I just wonder whether it if we were in the midst of it, so we weren't reflecting on having landed on the other side of it, mm -hmm. wouldn't if we were going to take that utterly seriously, doesn't that movement have a kind of emotional um, or, or some kind of real weight of... Okay. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. I'll say yes <laughs> to start with. Um, I've had a couple of experiences in freshman math um, when um, students... Freshman math is such a wonderful class because we have... The, Euclid's Elements, which is like a coherently written, wonderful textbook that's aimed at the kind of people who we are beginning in the subject. This is great. Um, 
and it's so well done. And I've, I've had the experience, maybe you've had it too, when someone gets up to the board and, and does a demonstration, gets partway through it, and you see for a moment the, uh, it's, it's kind of cliche, is the aha moment, mm -hmm. when they say, oh, that's the way it, I remember once someone was doing kind of mechanically the, uh, um, the famous 147 windmill proof of the Pythagorean theorem and got to the end of it and said, and so the square, this square, and this square together are equal to that square. And one of the students in the, around the table said, oh, <laughs> A squared, B squared, that's what that means. Yeah. And that kind of, that's a thrill. Yeah. That's kind of a thrill. And, it, yeah. And it, I'll just go, yeah, go, ahead. To go, go one ahead. more. Um, that thrill, and I hold it up next to an experience that I had later. I did a, a, a preceptorial more years ago than I care to remember about, um, okay, Galois theory. Mm -hmm. I've been looking for a long time. Um, um, geometry, Euclid's geometry is great in freshman, lab, freshman math. Uh, people love it. Um, algebra. We encounter algebra in the sophomore year, and I think some of our best faculty are capable of making that interesting and exciting. Mm -hmm. But I think even they would acknowledge that it's harder to do than with geometry. Um, and it's a long time um, lament that algebra is somehow inherently dull. I've been looking for a long time to find ways to find the beauty in algebra. Because um, I'll admit that a lot of it is rule following. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is mechanical manipulation in which you get punished for the kind of uh, errors that seem to trivial. You know, you're supposed to draw a little plus, and you actually draw a little negative, yeah. minus, and then a page and a half later, everything has gone completely down the <laughs> yeah. toilet, and you have to go back, and it just, and it feels terrible. Um, but I've been trying to look for the beauty in algebra, mm -hmm. and to find out where we can, what we can give, what we can look at. I'm not sure I've succeeded entirely, but my um, uh, explorations have led to um, something called Galois theory. Every Galois uh, was a mathematician in the early 1800s, uh, possibly the least happy person who ever worked in the field of mathematics. Uh -huh. um, he was, there are lots and lots of people in the world, I'm, I'm just I'm repeating myself, because uh, if this story sounds a little canned, it's because I've told it before, but I think it's good. Uh, there are lots of people who are um, who think of themselves as misunderstood geniuses mm -hmm. and have kind of they like to read Nietzsche by the way those people um, um, they they slink around and they feel angry all the time but a very small number actually are misunderstood geniuses and I think Every Galois was one of those he um, revolutionized the entire field of mathematics um, of the of um, abstract algebra but what he did was to show um, features of algebraic symmetry that had never been seen before. In the course of, of working toward putting together a class where I could take some students and kind of look at Galois theory, I was studying abstract algebra on my own. And I remember really distinctly working over a demonstration in group theory. It was a page and a half long, and I was reading through it, and, this, um, and these, um, 
arguments were being made that this was like this, and this was this, and this is related to this. Is. And then at the end, five different strands of argument came, that seemed completely unrelated to each other came together in a, in a moment. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I remember it laughing aloud, mm -hmm. le sort of leaning back, almost tumbled out of my chair because the, the proof was like a joke. It was like a perfect joke. It was like the perfect um, Rube Goldberg yeah. machine where things didn't seem to make any sense and then suddenly, bang, they were all together as you couldn't possibly have expected. And the, the surprise was fantastic. That, is that the, that, I think that may be the, I still haven't gotten beyond the idea that that may be the ultimate thing that mathematics can do, okay. is to show you a surprising order in things that seem disordered. That seems comical to me in the best way. Mm -hmm. And it's not the only human experience. It may not be the best and the deepest and the most moving human experience, but it's a human experience. Yeah. No, anyway, that's No, what it's I'm exciting. Of. And that description of a kind of moment of mathematical discovery is so exciting. Um, and it feels like we've had descriptions of, of an, I mean, for me, I think what's interesting is when I describe culture shock, mm -hmm. which is sort of the opposite in a certain sense of the disorderedness that mm -hmm. reveals itself in my normally ordered life, right? I, I tend to know sort of how I'm going about my day and what to expect, but suddenly thrown into a new culture, those things are not as, ta as taken for granted. They sort of strike me. Um, and that that too, for me, is a moment of great sort of presence and insight and excitement. And so it looks like we're getting to something like these, these moments of either self-knowledge or, or a relationship to the world around us that it, it pops in a way, it comes alive in, in a new sense, but that that could happen through a radical discovery of order where one didn't think there was order. Um, or in a place where you thought the world was put together in a certain way and it breaks and shows itself not to be. I think that's, that's interesting. There was, a, um, there was a moment um, I spent two years in China, um, 2012 to 2014. Um, uh, we had the, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to China. We spent two years at a high school um, in Beijing. Um, number of students from the program we were in, in this high school, it was a program devoted to uh, Chinese high school students who had decided to go west, go to the west, the cultural west, um, uh, for college rather than entering the Chinese uh, high school exam system. Um, we went to Beijing. There was a small unit in the corner of this high school in northwestern Beijing. Um, wonderful students, delightful time, more freedom than we expected to have. It was fantastic. Um, I, among the other, th among the other things that I did, um, I put together a semester-long course, which is was based on the way in which mathematics gets done in our graduate institute. We, so we read um, the first book of Euclid's Elements, which is the foundations of plane geometry, and then leapt ahead 2,000 years to um, um, uh, Lobachevsky, 
the mm. beginning of Lobachevsky's geometry in the early 19th century, in which um, uh, he challenges successfully what had been the um, troubling but really unchallengeable um, uh, postulate that had lived at the beginning of Euclidean geometry from the time of the uh, uh, that geometry was first formulated, the, uh, the parallel postulate that if you have a line and a point off the line, there's only one line through that point that can be parallel to this original line. And Lobachevsky challenges that. Um, what if there were two? Um, and it works it out and um, develops an entirely new geometry. So we presented this um, class to the students and it was very strange. Um, they, um, the Chinese high school students were um, polite as they invariably were, but a little bit contemptuous at the beginning. This is so elementary. They all learned this in sixth grade. This is, you know, why are we doing this? What they hadn't learned is sort of the, the uh, logical entailment structures of Euclid, which are wonderful. And they finally, in the course of reading the book, woke up mm -hmm. to the structure and the way in which the, the proofs formed a, a tree that was fantastic. And uh, they did a great project. And then we started reading Lobachevsky. And St. John's students often have difficult times with Lobachevsky, but the Chinese students had an extraordinarily difficult time with it because they had never, I mean, everything they had learned back in sixth grade, none of it prepared them for this. Mm -hmm. uh, where someone said, what if this isn't right? And they say, no, it is right. So, but what if it isn't? No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what if no? Finally, we pushed and we pushed and we pushed and we pushed and we finally, they started thinking about it, started working on it. A few of them were doing demonstrations and, and a few of them were like, they were feeling very upset. However odd I felt in our Chinese world, and all of the, the cultural disorientations that you're talking about, like, um, were there. Mm -hmm. um, my mind immediately went to one of the, the deepest cultural issues that, um, in my experience, which is what do you eat for breakfast? You know, the, the meal that you eat when you're not with other people usually and you're by yourself, and what is this? You know, <laughs> put all that to one side. But um, looking at it from their perspective, uh, we were pressing Lobachevsky. Um, and I remember uh, one of them finally, in a, a moment of frustration, someone was doing a demonstration, they got through, finished it, and said, and therefore, this line is never meets this, but it's not parallels, and they look kind of weird. And then this one student said, how could you say something so antisocial? Wow. It's just like, what? How did, how did that get into it? It's like That's these ideas were, you know, what was the, they weren't disturbing, they weren't uh, disorienting, they weren't upsetting, they weren't weird. Yeah. They were anti, how did that come out? You know, but That's it was what great. it was all about. And I think also that goes right to Nietzsche. I mean, our last seminar, the real problem that the students, I think, were very articulate about was mm -hmm. how does this, sort of wildly laughing, anti-conventional mm -hmm. person who is constantly breaking the boundaries um, of what we expect towards a sort of, in principle, a higher experience of life, how can they know anyone else? 
you know, what does it look like to have a community or, or, or friendship? I mean, I think Nietzsche probably has an answer for that. But I think that reaction is, is really appropriate, um, a worry about the relationship between... I think it's there is a kind of fantastic moment when a convention is broken, however you characterize it, if it has a violence to it or just a kind of awesomeness that that is its revealing nature is exciting, but that there there may be consequences to that. Yeah, consequences. What, what kind of consequences are you thinking about? Because I've got an idea. Well, I mean, I think it goes, it can go any number of ways. It it could be alienating, you know, mm-hmm. in a certain respect of if what your ordinary taken for granted world is suddenly breaks and there's sort of a, I always think of it as like a, a light, you know, shines mm-hmm. and that's exciting. It's It's something that has revealed itself. On the other hand, what does that do to the ordinary? What does that do to your walk through the world, to your relationships, if if that that having seen something new, you are no longer as at home as you were? Um, it's going to draw a whole lot of things into question. Um, but I wonder if there isn't another um, um, inescapable tension. Well decide later whether it's inescapable, but just say attention. I'm thinking, I'm glomming onto the word higher, this moment of insight, this moment of excitement, um, because intellectual moments like that are personal, they are private, they are oneself, they are, mm-hmm. um, um, and it's possible, um, maybe even likely or possibly conceivably inevitable that when you get a moment of insight, you feel like, I've got it, it's me. I'm, I see it, others don't. That might be antisocial, mm-hmm. alienating. Um, but you can, but there's a, um, generally, a possibility of going back and bringing that to the world around you. Uh, I'm thinking about the fact that um, we don't, at St. John's, we don't read our books alone. Mm-hmm. We read the books and then we go into groups and we talk. Mm-hmm. And if somebody has a private, if they're sitting by the, you know, what would happen? Imagine, what would happen if, you know, you know um, someone goes off, reads their seminar off in the corner of the library, you hear a sudden, ah! <laughs> at seminar, they sit stone silent, mm-hmm. and at the end, you ask them why, you know, what happened. If they said, "My insight is too good for you," you know, I don't think we no. You know, the answer is yeah. no. Uh, but I don't think these it has insights to... happen. But then we also bring them back. Yeah, and I don't think it has to do with the the being too good. Although I think that there is a temptation to read it that way if we're reading beyond good and evil. Mm-hmm. See, I want to turn around and start asking you where are the texts that make you. But I can't interview you. No, that's not what we're that's doing. That's for next time. That's, that's for, for another time. time. So, Grant, it's been a pleasure talking with you. We've covered a ton of terrain, starting on the banks of the Mississippi, traversing all kinds of works. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I mean, I'm left thinking seriously about a lot of things, sentimentality versus being moved in a different way, all of that in relation to kind of... Um, excitement we get at logical proof versus poetic 
um, sort of breaking open. All of that has been really exciting to talk about. It's been fun. It's been fun. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Continuing the Conversation is a 20-episode web and podcast series produced by the St. John's College Communications Office in partnership with 12 FPS and A Warehouse Productions. To continue the conversation with St. John's College, which offers a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, in-person and online master's degrees in liberal arts and Eastern classics, as well as summer academy for high school students and summer classics for lifelong learners, go to sjc.edu.